Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is an author, a filmmaker, an advocate, an entrepreneur focused on empowering aspiring leaders in a rapidly growing legal cannabis space. She's a Navy veteran, having received a Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal for her dedicated service as an aviation electronics technician from 2010 to 2014. She went on to earn her master's degree in business administration and information systems. She's here today to talk about her experience and her new book, The Successful Canapreneur. J.M. Balbuena, thank you so much for joining us here on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks, Montel. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You were born in uh, the DR, the Dominican Republic, yes. right? Yes, I was. I came to America when I was 13. Um, and uh, I've been here, uh, you know, <laughs> doing my thing and taking advantage of all the opportunities, and um, especially now in the space in cannabis. So, Sure. Uh, but let's back up. Before, before we talk about cannabis, let's talk a little bit about your stint in the Navy. What made you decide to join the Navy? Um, you know, I always kind of, it was kind of like my dream as a kid. Like I always tell the story. If you look at my, my, um, pictures when I was a little kid, my favorite outfit that I had was of a little sailor, but, um, I graduated high school. I wanted to join, um, I graduated shortly after nine 11. So my family wasn't too fond of that idea since we were at war. Um, and so I kind of put it in the back burner, went to college, got out, um, uh, Graduated from college, started in corporate America, did not like it. <laughs> I, I was very bored in corporate America and didn't necessarily uh, develop a passion for anything there. And so student loans started, payments started to come out, to come back. And um, the military offered a loan repayment program. And that was my excuse. I said, well, I'm going to join. And so I did. Did you go in as an officer or did you go in enlisted? I went in as enlisted, actually. That was the, the loan repayment program was for enlistment. Uh, okay. And, you know, now while on active duty, I mean, you sure, where did you serve? I served in, well, under my command was VFA 41. So we were a, um, a fighter jet squadron. Um, and uh, I was stationed in NAS Lemoore in California. Gotcha. And you deployed on um, carriers? Yes, the USS John C. Stannis. I served two deployments on board of that uh, aircraft carrier. Pacific deployments? What was that? Pacific deployments? Yeah, Western Pacific. Ah, cool. I was on the USS uh, Kitty Hawk in the Pacific and Indian Ocean. Oh, I didn't know you were Navy. I was Navy and Marine Corps. I did 22 years in service. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Thank you for your service. Thank you for yours. I was listed in, in the Marine Corps. We went to the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Got as an officer in the Navy, and then mm-hmm. was a special to the intelligence officer in the Navy for until uh, my service was done. So I, I had a pretty extensive career. That's awesome. I had no idea. That's oh. We got a lot in common that way, huh? Right. So, <laughs> one other comment that while you were on active duty, you suffered, you had an accident and suffered a traumatic yes. right? Talk a little bit yeah. about, about that. Yeah. So, you know, um, I was working on the flight deck and uh, was walking behind an aircraft and it went up on power and it, um, you know, the power of, of, of uh, F-18. So I was blown by it. I um, landed on my head first. Um, my cranial 
actually snapped in the forehead area in, in two pieces. So you can tell the, uh, the magnitude of that. Um, I, from that, you know, I, I lost the Spanish, the English language. Fortunately, you know, my first language is Spanish, but I couldn't speak English for like a good half an hour. Um, and I, you know, you know, when you know that you can do something, but like it was completely disappeared uh, from my brain and in that time frame, and that's when they realized that I, I had suffered, that I was concussed. Um, and needless to say, the pain and the back uh, pain, the, my rib cage was like what was hurting the most. Because um, I was a plane captain at that point. It was my first deployment, and I was carrying chains. I was going to um, ground the jet to do an inspection. And walking behind it, um, for some reason, the pilot went up on power and, and it just became a situation after that. But a lot of people, lot of people don't understand that. I want to give some of our listeners a little idea of my deployment in the I.O. in Indian Ocean. We had a couple of guys, literally, when a jet sits on an aircraft carrier, first off, people have to understand this is like a plane on a postage stamp, okay, right. in the middle of the ocean. And this thing's got to put, when they, when they go to full power or they even go to just start the engines, there's a blast that comes out of the rear of that aircraft that is so powerful that it can literally, on a deployment that I was on, blew a guy over overboard. Right. We lifted him up, threw him 40 feet off the side of the aircraft carrier. Yeah. Like, well, are you kidding me? No. And, I mean, you know, so it's a very dangerous. I mean, and, and being yeah. on an aircraft carrier, I don't believe there's a more dangerous, you know, 100 square yards than anywhere else. Right. In the entire military, That's I mean, it's like top five uh, most dangerous places to work. No, sands or butts. I mean, people saw what you guys do. The fact that you run underneath of running airplanes and roll aside them, and that's mm -hmm. it's insane. So now, yeah. how long did it take you to recover? So you know, I actually recovered quickly. To be honest with you, I didn't break any bones. I didn't. Um, so the only thing that I had was like the the pain, um, and then the 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 fr from that day on, my sleeping pattern was completely disrupted. That and you know it, it stemmed from that because before that it it was never an issue. Um, so I wasn't sleeping, um, and the funny thing is that I wasn't telling anybody. I wasn't associating it to the accident. I just would go back to work. Um, so they just gave me about three days off to recover from like the pain. Cause um, obviously it was kind of hard to move with, with all the pain and, and wanting to do my work. But uh, from there, I would just work even more. I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like I couldn't sleep. So at first I was going to work out, you know, how it goes, you're deployed, you really have nothing to do. I'm in on my rack, just like, doo -doo 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 -doo, you know, and so I was like, well, let me, let me work out. Let me like try to do something. Um, and before working out, I was mostly working at the job and they were like, um, aren't you night check? Why are you, it's noon. Why are you still here? I'm like, I can't sleep. Um, and so my leading petty officer was like, uh, we need to take you to medical to get that checked. And from there, you know, that's when they started doing all the studies to see like what was going on. 
and you know, you're deployed as bare minimum care. And then once I got back uh, from deployment, that's when I went to into full blown physical therapy and they were doing a lot of studies on, on, on my brain to see if there was anything going on. Um, but you know, from that, they really can't do much, but just monitor. And, um, mostly what they did was try to control, um, my sleeping situation so I can actually rest of the night. And they just kept putting me in different medications because some of them were highly addictive and some of them, you know, can cause other things. Um, and eventually I just got out of the military. <laughs> were you medically discharged? No, I was not. So I, by the time I did my four years and I got out and then it became the VA's uh, study now. So every year I have to go into so they can scan my brain and to make sure that everything's still okay. But the only thing that's what pretty much led me to cannabis. So um, coming out uh, out of the military, I was um, dealing with the lack of sleep and that would led to the most tension that I've ever experienced. You know, I, I, night again, just not putting two and two together and the fact that I'm not sleeping and then I'm, ha I'm having anger management issues. I'm having relationships, problems, you know, with my family, with my partner. And, and it just became super dark. And somebody was like, you know, you need a joint. Smoke in this joint real quick. And, and you know, maybe things will tone down a little bit. And it, they did. And it was not something that I was expecting because I was never like a, an avid cannabis consumer. I, I did consume cannabis while I was in college, but not necessarily a thing that was... I was like, oh, smoking weed is so cool or anything like that. I would just do it at parties and things of that nature. And in that moment that I smoked that joint with another veteran who had just gotten out and he was also dealing with certain things and cannabis was helping him. And I was like, I felt like myself. Like I felt again, like no tension, just like things were funny and I thought to myself, this is what I want. This is how I want to feel. And I was like, with or without cannabis, I want to feel that way because I felt like myself. Um, and so I started looking into it, um, dealing with my own stigma of, you know, the this gateway situation. Am I going to be uh, going into other drugs or anything like that? That's how, you know, ignorant I was about, about the plant and, and the potential uh for wellness. And it just went down the rabbit hole from there. I um, met my business partner who was actually, um, and at that point it was 2015, he was looking into getting uh, a license to, to do a cultivation here. And when I met him and he told me about that, the rest is history. I was like, um, yes, let's, let's, I want to get more into this and learn more about it. But I mean, it's, it's, you know, for a lot of people, you know, TBI is one thing. That's something that's just, you know, and you're noticing that, you know, right now so far, it's been most of your, the rest of your life so far. Mm -hmm. that exactly. And there's PTSD that goes along with that. Right. A lot of people uh, would not be able to start thinking about becoming successful business entrepreneurs. Excuse me. How do you think that, you know, what, what is it in you that you think sets you apart from some others? I would say my background. Um, I come from a, a, a family where, you know, my mom, my my dad, they all had their own businesses. My my uncles, 
they've all started their own businesses or partner up to start a business. And when I saw the opportunity, the first thing I talk about this in my book, The Successful Entrepreneur, where the first time that I went to a dispensary and I saw the traffic, um, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, um, this many people are here. You know, I'm calculating as I'm walking the amount of people waiting to get checked in, the amount of people coming out of the sales room. And it just, from that moment, I was like, wait, this is an actual viable product. Uh, um, and, and when I did, once I went into the dispensary and my gears are grinding about the situation, a month later, that's when, you know, I manifested meeting my business partner and he's talking about, um, the funny thing is he's at my home. Um, he was a plus one at a, at a an event that I had and he's smoking blunts, like back to back, like chain smoking almost. And I jokingly, I said to him, you either work in, in this industry or you have to grow like your own. And he's like a little bit of both. And then we started talking about that. And that's when he was throwing around the word legal and cultivation site and this and that. And I was like, we need to talk more. What was, what was your entry point? Did you go? Did you start off in cultivation, then you went into dispensing, or did this person have a fully vertical license? What? No. So at that point, he was helping a Native American tribe um, create their program, and I came in in helping him do that. So I don't have. I'm not a cultivator. I'm more. I started more on the administrative side of things, um, helping him put together uh, that ordinance for the Native American tribe here in San Diego. Um, and then helping to manage the compliance of that. So that's that's how I started. At that point, you know, I already had my master's degrees, and um, that's the how I told them, like, I want to help you, and the way that I can do it is, you know, in the business side of things. He gave me the opportunity, and you know, and later on, we just became partners, and we've been rocking ever since. And so, what's what's the business now? Do you have your own licenses, or are you still consulting? Yes. There's one. Yeah. So right now we have, um, we are, we have a, uh, our Jack's Cannabis is our retail brand. So we have a dispensary. We also have a manufacturing facility. Um, Where's that located? In San Diego. Okay. San Diego, California. Yeah. We've been operating our dispensary since 2017. Um, and the manufacturing licenses we got late last year. Um, and we're operating there um, as what it's in here in San Diego as well. Um, and we have two other licenses uh, for retail that we here in San Diego as well that we are looking to build out and, and open up here towards the end of the year. Gotcha. And now you just wrote this book called The Successful Canapreneur. Tell me yeah. what So The Successful Canapreneur is my story. Um, as you know, I, like I was mentioning earlier, I started as a patient and became a professional in the space and um, then became an entrepreneur in the space. And um, the reason why I wrote that book is because once I was in the trenches, I realized that, you know, the, the, the space is so dynamic, things are changing so fast and people come in and out like super quick. And, um, my purpose with the book was to just to paint a picture from like an operator standpoint, from, you know, the, from the viewpoint of a woman of color, you know, because that, um, not necessarily was something, uh, that was viewed as like an operator didn't look like me essentially. So I thought it, it, it behooved me to tell my story and, and give people like me a voice. But most importantly, I also wanted to, um, 
paint a, a, a picture that was accurate um, and not like sensationalizing cannabis or, or the industry, but mostly because I wanted um, the reader to get uh, that clear picture and then attract high quality individuals, you know, high quality entrepreneurs, high quality investors, high quality professionals that want to know the ins and outs you know, from, from the viewpoint of somebody that's been doing it for a few years. And so I, I wrote the book. I wrote it actually two years ago. Um, during COVID, I had a little more time, uh, to my hand and, and, you know, I decided to just sit there and, and write it out. So most recently I just got it translated into Spanish because then some of my family members, like the older people in my family, they were like, well, we don't, we, you know, they don't speak English that well. So they're like, what can you, how are we going to read the book? So I was like, you know what? Great point. <laughs> let me, um, let me translate it and make sure that the Spanish speaking community also has access to this information. That's super important. So the book is now available in Spanish um, and you can get it on Amazon. Oh, it's on Amazon. Right? Okay, good. Now you talk about, you know, how prohibition was a opportunity, if you will. In your Absolutely. Book. How so? Talk about that. Well, uh, prohibition is an opportunity because look at now, um, I think it created a barrier um, for people to come in. So right now, um, you know, because it's still, prohibition is still ongoing at the federal level, I feel like the opportunity is uh, that it gives us still some time to create a more solid foundation before these, you know, huge companies come in, um, because that's what they're waiting on, you know, for for the federal prohibition to be removed, and then they can come in and, and, you know, come with all guns blazing with all the access to capital. But I think like right now, that barrier to entry gives us the, the opportunity to continue to build um, um, upon a solid foundation that when when they come in, you know, we already are cemented on the ground and, and you know, they have to work with us in order to participate. So that's why I feel that way. What do you think some of the biggest hurdles are for entrepreneurs? So I would say for for people of color, for instance, we we have the same issues in that other industries, the lack of access to capital. Then at the beginning, you know, when most of these ordinances are created, they don't want you to have um, uh, uh a criminal history. And most of the people that want to work in this industry may have already had a conviction because, you know, of the, of the status of, of the schedule one. So that, you know, you have to overcome those hurdles and that how we do that is with the advocacy, with the education, because most of these people that are creating these ordinances, they don't know cannabis, you know, they, they're, they are creating these ordinances based on, you know, the benefit of, of their city and, you know, how they're going to make money. I um, mean, sometimes, you know, the ignorance just creates these, these hurdles for, for entrepreneurs. But I do think that coming together, you know, as, as teams, like for instance, my business partners and I came together, uh, he had all the experience in the world because he had already been in this space for about 20 years, uh, growing on the legacy side. And then, uh, on the license side here in San Diego, and then working on the Prop 215 
Um, and then I came in with my business acumen and my entrepreneurial uh, abilities from, you know, growing up in a family that had that and then the educational background. Um, and then, you know, here we are. And mind you, let me tell you, personal hurdles for us was at some point, like back in, in, in 2017, 2018, we had a vertical, vertical integration um, as far as licenses. We had the um, the cultivation side that I spoke about in, in the Native American uh, tribe. Then we ended up getting another cultivation in Humboldt. Um, we had a manufacturing facility in Santa Rosa, and we had our retail here in San Diego. And mind you, we were not getting funded. We were pitching and you know putting together a, a business plan, a, a vertical integration, and zero dollars came our way. And then we just put our head down, kept working. Um, because of the lack of access uh, to the capital, we had to let go of some of those assets um, because as you know, it's super expensive um, to, to be able to run that together. So in order to grow it, you need the money. Um, and so we just went back to the drawing board and you know knew that we wanted to be here for the long run and just you know, used our creative vision to create a plan that that would make sure that we were still here. In my, a lot of the companies in 2017, 2018 that were getting funded are not even here anymore. And we still are. So, you know, that speaks volumes about the the grit and the the um just the the tenacity to keep going even when things seem like they're not gonna work out in your favor. You know, and it must be really, really tough. You, you keep talking about your partner, he, mm-hmm. but, you know, I'm looking at she, and <laughs> you are very few, one of very, very, very few mm-hmm. African-American females in this industry nationwide. Right. Talk a little bit about the hurdles that you faced, you know, being a woman of color, trying to just make this happen. I mean, yeah, it, it's been it's been tough. It's been tough to to be taken seriously, I would say. Um, especially at the beginning when, um, when there's less of us in the room and most of the time I was the only woman in the room. Fortunately for me, like working with my business partner, he never necessarily, that was never an issue in our company. As a matter of fact, right now, all managers in our company are women. Um, we, we, we are very focused on, you know, the fact that we need more women, um, making things happen. Um, also the fact that we need the veterans, um, most of our managers are women veteran. Um, and we understand that women get things done (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, um, and that we need that opportunity and, and, and we are doing that as a company, just giving women the opportunity to, uh, to to display their, their abilities. And, and it has been, and we not, we don't regret it, put it that way. Um, but, you know, I would say outside of our little safe space, um, it, it has definitely been, uh, difficult. I do think it's getting better. Why? Because there's more women that are creating their own opportunities, just like we have done here with Prime Harvest in our company. Um, and, uh, What's the name of the company again? Prime Harvest is our holding company. Jack's Cannabis is our retail uh, brand and and dispensaries. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I I think 
a lot of people don't really understand. I mean, just what's it like for you when you you have to go to one of these meetings and you're sitting in the room, people must look at you and go, where the heck did you come from kind of thing, right? Yeah, they do until, you know, I start talking and they realize the power behind <laughs> the experience. And, and then I look super young too. So looking young and, the, and I'm not that young, you know, I'm 39 years old. So, uh, looking, young. <laughs> looking young and then, um, not necessarily the person that they're expecting, you know, a lot of the times they just have the expectations, but once, once you, you know, you step into your power and, and, and your experience and then, you're saying the right things and and just providing solutions that, you know, there's nothing really anybody can do to stop you. So you've also talked a little bit about the fact that in the cannabis industry, it's not just about touching the cannabis. There's so many other ancillary areas uh, in the business that people could consider that they may not know, know about. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one of the, um, an ancillary, it, it would be, uh, uh, a company or a service that actually supports the industry. I mean, touching the plant, that's one thing. And number one, it would be the most expensive way to get into this space nowadays. But, you know, there are so many needs for the industry uh, to be supported. Like, let's say accounting, you know, it, we don't speak enough about how much or how important it is to have an accountant that's versed in 280E um, that can actually help you navigate that so you can actually run your business in an efficient manner uh, financially. That's super important. So that's an opportunity for somebody. You don't need to become a grower. You don't need to become you know, a manufacturer. You don't need to have a brand, but you can make you know, you're, you can make a name for yourself by actually providing a service that supports the industry. I mean, look at tech. There's so many different tech aspects like POS systems, marketing systems, um, and all of these don't speak to each other because there's a lot of different companies. And I'm speaking, you know, from an operator's standpoint and, and the things that we need, right? So there are so many little aspects of the industry that, People can participate in um, and, and, and provide a service and have uh, use the cannabis um, industry as a niche to provide a service. And if you provide a service that is great, you will have a lot of clients. Um, so I think it's super underrated, it's super underrated um, when people don't look at the industry as maybe, and this is what I recommend, and I and I and I say this in the book is Look at the industry, study it, find a problem, provide a solution, and you'll be a part of it. You'll be a part of it, and and you'll be a part of it, and and you'll be able to make a financial, a well financial situation for yourself um, by providing a service and solving that problem. Tell me a little bit about this new. You got an online show called Cannabis Synergy. Tell me about that. So Cannabis Synergy was my first production um, and we haven't done it since COVID. So it was a, um, a, an event, a talk show, event format talk show. So I would bring um, sort of like what you used to do with, with your talk show where I would bring, um, in, uh, I would bring people that were doing things in the space um, and we would talk about uh, their experience. Like for instance, our first episode, we had 
Colin Wells. Um, he runs a, a, a um, an organization, a nonprofit called Veterans Walk and Talk. So the way that I did it is I invited his organization. They were the audience. Um, he was one of the um, the guest speakers, and we discussed like veterans of and cannabis, um, and not only cannabis but psychedelics and how that movement was going on. So we also had um, music. Uh, we had the consumption side of things, um, and just you know an educational experience for people. Um, we also, some of our episodes included um, talking about social equity, um, uh, talking about um, cannabis and pets and, and things of that nature. So it was super educational. And then we had the live audience component. And so when COVID happened, we had to do away with that. And so we just started creating um, pre-recorded content um, to educate. Is it still running now? No. So now we are focused on doing more uh, marketing content and then my documentary that's based on the book. So that's that's uh, where we decided to pivot when, you know, once we couldn't do it anymore. Um, so that the documentary, um, we are doing our final uh, filming in the next couple of months and we should have that available um, towards, you know, the end of the summer. So what would the documentary be called? What would the documentary be called? That successful canopreneur. Got it, got it, got it. Tell me about this BSW, this boycott shitty weed. What is that all about? So boycott shitty weed um, is pretty much my creative advocacy outlet. Um, I started the brand. Funny thing, let me tell you how boycott shitty weed started it. Um, when I started Cannabis Synergy, I was having a lot of problems getting sponsors. Uh, one, because I didn't have that much experience um, in filmmaking and creating uh, events and things like that. And so I created my own brand to sponsor my own show. <laughs> and that's how Boycott Shitty Weed started. So the brand, it's just an advocacy brand and we use... Um, uh, merch, we use graphics, we use uh, content um, to revolutionize advocacy. Right now, you know, we created metaverses to showcase our different, um, the different, uh, the different, uh, oh my God, I'm drawing a blank here, I apologize. But mm -hmm. our, our different collections that we put out. So like, for instance, the first one was just Boycott Shitty Weed Awareness Campaign, which in which we just decided to promote um, what does Boycott Shitty Weed means. It means, you know, obviously uh, quality matters uh, when you're consuming, um, being intentional with your consumption. Uh, you know, like for instance, with me, I needed to, to control my, my sleeping. So, I, you know, telling my story in, in that sense, and then just bringing awareness to the fact that um, in cannabis, you know, shitty weed might also mean, you know, that there's a business that's not supporting social equity. So that, you know, just taking it, not just from the consumption, but just looking at the industry from, from just a different lens. And then the, the our second collection was called Propaganda. In that one, uh, uh, we highlighted the heroes versus villains in the space. So we talking about prohibition and who contributed to making cannabis illegal and criminalizing uh, drug drug abuse instead of making it uh, a healthcare um, situation, which is really what it is, and then showcasing the heroes um, like Dennis Barone and and people that Jack Herr, Bob Marley, people that actually 
brought awareness to the fact that this plant has medical benefits, that this plant um, has a lot of potential for sustainability and things like that. And then our third collection, the most recent one is called Vipers and Vipers means stoner. When, but Vipers was a, um, a term coined by the jazz, um, the jazz community. Um, and, and people of color at that point, um, which were the people that were highlighting with this collection, they used cannabis for creative purposes, you know, to, to freestyle when they were, you know, creating music, um, but also to deal with the racial relations that were horrible back in the 1920s and 1930s, given that, you know, a lot of them were super famous. They can only perform in front of white audiences. They can only, you know, they had to come in through the back, even though they were the main people. And then cannabis helped them to deal with that anxiety. And a lot of them were super vocal about it. So each one of the collections, you know, just tells a different story of how cannabis has been uh, a part of the culture. And that, you know, with Boycott Shitty Weed, we we expressed that with merch, we expressed that with content. Um, most recently, we created metaverses um, in which, you know, if you have your VI goggles, you can uh, walk into the spaces and, and, and see the different stories that I just went over. So, you know, I just it's something that I have a lot of fun with. It's super creative and, and we've built a really cool community around it. Well, you you, you just you, you mentioned social equity a couple of times, but where do you think this industry is headed when it comes to social equity? Because I mean, I think, you know, we are headed I, from my perspective is that, you know, you said it yourself. I mean, I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, as we get more and more states that come on board, the Fed's going to have to do something. Right. And if it does do something, you know, it's going to be something that's going to, I think, push a lot of what these concerns for social equity are right out the door as if people don't care. I mean, I think by the time the Fed decides to say yes, I think, you know, that'll be a no to social equity from that point forward, personally. I really hope it's not that way. I do think um, a lot of states are taking social equity very seriously, especially because there's a lot of advocates doing a lot of great work you know, to make sure that we get a piece of the pie. Like, I'll give you an example. Here in San Diego, right, as it stands right now, there there is no social equity program at all. And so the licenses that we've gotten, it's, you know, on our own accord, you know, doing, putting in the work. Fortunately, you know, we've been following this license processes for, for a while and, and being uh, very focused and making sure that we're involved when things are happening. But only most recently in the past year, they have taken social equity matters into their hands. However, you know, there are people working really hard to make sure that it's a fair process, that it's a fair situation uh, for the beneficiaries of these programs. Um, if you take a look at New York, New York, you know, I feel like because New York, because New York is setting a standard, like just recently they approved, I think it was 99 licenses for social equity candidates. Um, and I would say this, I'm glad that people are getting access, you know, to, to the licenses and, and to having assets that can potentially create uh, its legacy for, for their businesses and things like that. But, but still, you know, running a cannabis business is still really a really tough situation because of 280e um, because of the different aspects that still super 
you know, um, like I was saying earlier with, you know, the POS system, and then you have the metric system, and then you have the other systems, and they are still super clunky. And so you have to have a, a very strong team in order to be able to, to, to um, efficiently run all of that together. And um, it's not, you know, it's not easy. Um, but, and, and I do think like, for instance, the San Diego program, they have taken that into account. Um, and even the, the, how expensive it is to, to operate a business like that and, um, creating programs to be able to assist in this, in these different areas where the hurdles are still, uh, preventing people from, from, from running a successful business. And, and I think because of that, it might be, you know, it might be a good situation. Now, when the feds um, remove the the plan from the schedule, and other people have access and and in the money to buy people out and do all these different things, yeah, that's highly concerning. I'd say, in my opinion. Well, if you had to put your crystal ball on, when do you think would put a crystal ball on and tell me when you think the change is going to come for federal prohibition to cease? Yeah. You know, crystal ball, <laughs> mm -hmm. I would say in another like five to six years, I don't, I think, um, a, the president that takes on this, this issue, they're going to have to deal with letting the people that are in jail for this out of prison first. I mean, there is no way that federal prohibition is removed. And we still have people in jail for this. I feel like that presents a huge issue um, and, and a liability for lawsuits and all types of situations that I don't that's, think. That's, that's if you think that people care. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I say that and I don't say that trying to be facetious, but, you know, it's like, do the masses really care? I mean, you know, they've used this as an a reincarceration tool and an incarceration tool, a reenslavement tool for mm. so many for so long, it accomplished what a lot of people wanted, and that was putting a lot of people of color in prison. Right. So now if they decide, well, we switched the thing, we're gonna make it legal, you know, we'd have to be worried or we'd have to think that the people who are not in prison or look like those people, let's remember that people of color only make up depending on which way you want to define that, mm -hmm. African-Americans only make up 16, 13% of this nation's population. You know, um, you add to it, Hispanic people of darker skin, mm -hmm. added to that, now you're talking about 20, 25% of the population. So this 75% of the population may not even give a damn, you know, uh, let them say. I think they, I think they care. I think, I mm -hmm. think people care. Um, I do think, most people understand that this plant is really not something for people to be in jail for. Well, I, you know, I, I, I would say something. I, I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but, you know, mm -hmm. I have a, a, you know, optimist. I'm an optimist, so we're going to keep going back and forth here. <laughs> I've been an optimist in this business for a long time, but let me explain something to you. I've been doing this for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I didn't get into this five years ago. Six years ago, when everybody decided this was the green rush, right? Two years ago, 
I started my advocacy going from state to state to state to state to state, trying to make sure that patients had efficacious medication. That's what I started on back in 2000. Thanks for doing that. Well, I know, but now it's 2003, 2023. Yeah. Well, 23 years later, we're still sitting here having a discussion about "Mm, possibly when might this be made legal. So I don't have, I'm not a pessimist, but I'm also, and I look at the way this nation is divided. I mean, look what just happened in Tennessee. You know what I mean? Look at the way this nation is divided. We live in a nation where, you know, when children die, black people get thrown out of legislation. Excuse me. I'm just, you know, it's like, when are we ever going to get an opportunity to move the needle in a different direction? I don't know. I, and again, you're right. As pessimists, optimists, I'll go back in my optimistic way, but I don't think that this is going to be. It's going to take a, probably 15 to 20 years before the majority of this nation says, you know what? We, we, we messed up when it came to this, because that's also another thing. Yeah. That's part of the reason why. Accepting. Huh? That's just, that's responsibility that of the mistake. Cannabis is part of the reason why cannabis is is fought in so many places because to say that we should make it legal means that we've made a mistake for seventy years. Right. And there are a lot of people who don't want to say they made a mistake. Mm-hmm. We lock them darkies up for a real good reason. They want to lose an opportunity to just go. You know, remember, you know, we 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 go into certain communities. Make people turn their pockets inside out, find a joint, they put them in jail. Go right. to other communities, do the same thing, they get they take it and go your merry way. Or even harsher drugs like meth or sure. Know. Sure. So I know but that's good though. I just wanted to feel where where you think this may change. Anything else in the industry you want to talk about? Um, I can talk about something that we're doing that would give people access to investing in this space. Um cool. Thepeople.com is, uh, our, so our company, Prime Harvest, just got approved or qualified by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission um, to raise capital under Reg A. Um, and so we are, we created our campaign to do so, and it's called Weed for the People. And anybody interested in investing in this space and in exchange for equity, um, they can check out weedforthepeople.com to, to see the benefits of, of being a part of our company at the ownership level. And that uh, we're super excited about that. Um, and so that is pretty much how we are resolving the lack of access to capital. Um, and just building a, a community of investors who care about the industry, who who want to be a part of the industry. I mean, there's a lot of people that want to be a part of cannabis and not necessarily be an operator, um, but they can own stake in 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 an operator in a business that's expanding throughout the state of California. Um, and so we created this campaign and worked really hard, you know, to get this qualification. Um, and we're super excited about talking about the, throughout the state of California. Now, California has get, is grow, is rapidly getting a really bad reputation. It's tough because you've got such a black market and gray market. And and what's doing that is our our the, our regulations. You know, our regulations are making it super tough for operators. But you know. I told you who we are. We don't give up and, and, and we find, you know, we use our creative vision and, and, and just our tenacity to keep going and our passion to 
be in this space and, and to actually create a sustainable um, business opportunity for ourselves. And now we're opening it up uh, to our community. Uh, we started, you know, right now we're campaigning with our customer because think about this. This is this is our, our creative genius. We're at work. We're thinking if we get our customer to be an owner, like a, actually own stock in our company, they won't shop anywhere else. So now we have a, a, a customer for life and also a marketer for life because now whoever they talk to, hey, go shop at my dispensary, go support my business, you know, because they actually have skin in the game. And so that that's just our way to to create a situation that's beneficial for everybody. Super. Unbelievable. And if people wanted to find out more information, where would they go? Well, for this would be uh, weedforthepeople.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn and all the social personally. So um, uh, JM Balbuena, you can uh, buy my book, The Successful Canopreneur. It's available on Amazon. It's available um, at wherever you can buy a book digitally or hard copy. Um, also, it's available on audiobooks for my audiobook people. And like I said earlier, it's available in Spanish as well. Para mi gente que habla español. My goodness, thank you so much. I, I, I hope, I wish you well. Um, look forward to talking to you again down the road. If something comes up, you want to be able to, you know, chop it up a little bit, give me a call back, okay? Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Super fan, by the way. Thank oh, you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. You take care of yourself and make sure you tune in to the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.